Well, good morning, everyone. Uh, welcome to this Institute for Government uh, event. My name is Hannah White, and I'm acting uh, director of the Institute. And thank you for joining us, a particular thank you for joining us so early in the morning. Uh, your stamina is noted. <laughs> <laughs> so this event is to look at the civil service. How can the civil service be more efficient but work better? And obviously, from the Institute for Government's uh, point of view, this is a question we think about a lot. And the last few years have been something of a whirlwind from the point of view, I think, of, of the Mandarin class, who prefer to stay normally out of the limelight. Um, we began with Dominic Cummings, his hard reign on the civil service, uh, his, his misfits and, and weirdos. Uh, then, and essentially, you know, a, a, a strong um, a push to reform the civil service. Uh, then we had Michael Gove taking up the mandate, um, and uh, really the nearest thing we've had to an actual plan to achieve uh, changes. Then Jacob Rees-Mogg arrived with his desk notes and his plans to cut 91,000 uh, from the civil service. And now we have a new government also pledging to shake up the system. So what we want to discuss today is the core question that underpins all of this. How can the same civil service get better? And now that we have faced the uh, prospect of huge efficiencies being needed in the public sector, how can it do that with less money? And I'm really delighted to have a fantastic panel with us here today to discuss the, this, these questions. Uh, we have, starting from, from left to right, Baroness Stoll, uh, Lord Maud of Horsham, uh, Gillian Keegan, and uh, Alex Thomas. And we'll uh, let them each kick off with some, some remarks. Um, I'll put some questions to them and then we'll make sure we have plenty of time for questions uh, at the end of the, of, uh, the event. Um, Lord Maud has to uh, leave us at uh, 9 o'clock, I believe, so we'll make sure we get to him before uh, that happens. So can I start with, with, with you, Lord Maud? Um, you were obviously the driving force behind civil service reform uh, under the coalition government. Um, it's one of your specialist subjects. Um, so how do you rate the reform that's actually taken place over the last few years? Do you think we now have a more efficient and effective civil service than we did when you left government? Um, short, short answer, no. But I was a little puzzled by in the title of, your, of this uh, event. Uh, how can the civil service be more efficient but work better? And. As if there is a, a sort of tension between being more efficient and working better. These are absolutely should be in lockstep. Um, and uh, the, the IFG themselves have produced a, a, a graph, very graph vivid graph that shows the numbers, headcount in the civil service declining uh, pretty steadily between 2010 and 2015. And since 2015, kind of it bottoms out and then goes back up to pretty much the same level. And yeah. that's where I think Jacob got his 91,000 from. It, it, the, the numbers fell like for like by <coughs> a bit over 20% in those five years. And they've gone up by would now to about the same number, so an increase of 25%. Is the civil service doing 25% more than it was in 2015? Uh, no, frankly. I mean, it might be doing more. Brexit has certainly, uh, and, and, and COVID, but you know, is the steady state work needed 20%, 25% more than it was then? No. So um, it's not clear to me um, that it's more efficient or, or more effective than it was. And you've been conducting a review into uh, subjects close to the IFG's heart, uh, governance and accountability of the civil service. What difference do you think these things make to, to government effectiveness? And can you give us a sense of how your thinking is, is developing on these topics? 
Uh, well, I thought when I started, embarked on this, I thought it would be, the focus would be very well trodden ground around um, the account, of, I mean, it should be a basic rule that accountability and authority should be closely aligned for, that, for things to be effective. And I thought, you know, ministers are, have a pretty undiluted responsibility for everything that happens in their department. They have decent authority over financial resources, but very truncated authority over human resources, over people. And, you know, that whole issue is fraught with the issues around impartiality and politicization. It's very well trodden ground. I think there may be some things can be done. But actually, the more interesting thing that occurred to me was when I was reading through and talking to people is how much the same issues come up you know over the decades you know go back to Fulton and you know 54 years ago and before and then you read what Kate Bingham wrote about her and said about her experience uh, brief experience in government uh, and very successful uh, experience it's it's deja vu all over again I mean the same issues come up over too many generalists, not enough specialists, particularly with, on science and technical um, issues, the churn, civil servants moving kind of randomly from one post to another in an unmanaged, uncontrolled way, the impermeability, the sense that there's this impervious carapace around, particularly around the kind of Whitehall Mandarin civil service, uh, with, with, with experience from outside not really being valued or uh, or, or, or wanted, um, skills may be wanted, but not the experience from outside, uh, and the resistance to innovation. Uh, and you know, why, when no one disagrees, these aren't contentious things, no one says these wouldn't be good things to change and, and improve, uh, and you come back to the first question, does anyone have authority? Answer, no. Being head of the civil service has always been a part-time job for someone being also cabinet secretary or head of CLG or pre before that head of the treasury. Um, and even if there was a dedicated full-time head of the civil service, and the only time there was one, um, the responsibility was split between the, what was then the Department for Civil Service and uh, the treasury. So even he didn't have authority over the civil service. And even if there was such a person, it isn't one civil service. Uh, and so the issue um, of it does, does the head of the civil service have authority or is it departmental has never been resolved. And if there was such a person with authority over the whole of the civil service, um, who would hold them to account for these long-term uh, reforms that are needed, the continuous improvement that's needed, the building of capability that's needed? Um, and the textbook answer would be, well, of course, ministers will hold them to account. But in reality, ministers won't um, because ministers don't stay there long enough. It's not their focus. And these are issues where, which run over between prime ministers and different administrations. So there needs to be uh, some um, uh, entity outside, beyond ministers, who have custody of the uh, uh, of the reform package and are holding such a civil service head of the civil service to account uh, for delivering it. So this is uh, th this has become f more far-reaching than I expected it to, um, and um, uh, 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 and that it, things will need if, if it's, and and the things which I am concluding need to change are quite difficult um, and maybe too difficult. Um, 
to stomach, both in the political world and in the civil service. But my conclusion is, if you don't do this, then in five years and 10 years and 50 years, people will still be talking and complaining about the same things that are perfectly capable of being changed, um, but with simply nowhere near being set up in such a way as to make it possible. Very interesting, and I must say the Institute shares much of your analysis, and so we'll be with you in the, <laughs> the, the fight. Gillian, can I turn to you? You've now had experience of the civil service uh, working in three different government departments. Um, what do you think needs to happen to make the civil service more efficient? Well, first of all, a, a disclaimer, I'm not, this is not my specialist subject at all. Um, I've been five years in Parliament, I've been two and a half years a Minister. Of course, based on what uh, Francis says, that means I've been in three departments. Uh, <laughs> as, soon as, you, as soon as you get to know something, I spent the whole summer uh, of, of really getting into the details of the Mental Health Act. That um, knowledge will stay with me, but I'm not sure when I'll use it. Um, I've never been a civil servant, I've never been a special advisor, but I'm blessed or cursed with having worked 30 years in multinational organisations and having run big teams and having to done, do all the difficult things that Francis says in other organisations. And they are difficult things. Um, and what, what, what simply is my, um, my observation? Well, there's absolutely no incentives for anyone to do the difficult things. Uh, in every business career I've had, there's loads of incentives to do the difficult things. Mostly, if you don't do them, you'll be exposed and out. You'll probably have to make a lot of people redundant because you're, you're not going to meet your customers' requirements and your competition are going to do it a lot better. Of course, you don't have competition. That changes factors. Um, you know, there's a lot um, of, of focus. There's a lot of really good people trying to get it right. Um, they're often very detached from the problem they're trying to solve. There is a policy fetish. I have no idea where yeah. that's come from, but it's a fetish. And I, actually, I know why it is. It's safe ground. Yeah. It's safe ground to stay there, and it's safe ground to not want to do it. Um, so the incentives aren't there. But this lack of action, this decades of lack of action, I speak to everybody. I'm a very open person. I speak to everyone at the water cooler, everybody, you know, <laughs> If they're, if, they're, if they're wherever they are, and particularly um, you know, employees who are further down the organisation, they see it all, and it depresses them. Um, they, it, they see the bad practice, they see it costs money, they see it blocks their opportunity, and it makes pay discussions very difficult, and they are on, they are on the receiving end of the lack of action. Now, who should do it? Well, I actually think the leaders of the organisation should do it, like every leader in an organisation needs to do it. So there are leaders in organisations, they're called the management. They should be doing it. Some of you may be that person. I don't know what stops you doing it. Probably um, a culture. So the culture is uh, a safe culture. I've worked in, in organisations where that's been the case as well. Uh, the most most memorable, probably when I was in um, banking in the 90s and I worked for NatWest Bank, and it was very obvious there, um, the middle management, anybody who innovated, anybody who took a risk, anybody who tried to do things that were obvious to everybody that needed to be done, their head was chopped off and out they went. And what happened eventually? The 355th biggest bank in the world took over the fourth biggest bank in the world. And that is what happened. Uh, that was RBS, okay, it didn't end well, uh, but that was for very different reasons. In, in every organisation I've ever worked in, um, there is an expectation of continuous improvement because it's competitive, because somebody else is going to get there if you don't. Massive customer focus. The person who's closest to the customer is, is, has all the power in, in most of the businesses that I've, I've, I've uh, worked in, 
I question whether most people know who the customer is yeah. in the civil service. I, I once asked, I was with, I won't name him, but it was a permanent secretary in, in one department, and they had by the lift about the customer, and I said, who is it? Who's your customer that you're, all these things, all these great words that you're focused on all, all the time? He gave me one answer. I asked somebody else, he gave me a different answer. Mm -hmm. And everyone gave me an answer, which was different sets of stakeholders. And I said, they're not your customer. Mm. They're not. Actually, they're, they're a supplier. They're taking your money. That's different. <laughs> they're taking your money and you're paying them to tell them what to do with it. This is, this is different. They don't know who the customer is. So I think continuous improvement is something. It's an embedded assumption in business. Every budget line, every budget you ever get, there is embedded assumption that you will reduce cost by 5% every year. Why? People get better at knowing what they're doing. Organizations get better at working together. Technology improves aspects. Processes get changed. Processes get continually changed. Processes get continually questioned. Efficiency is, 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 is at the heart of it. Why? Because you don't have the luxury of anything else. Um, you know, that, that's my, my insights. Um, so what, what can you do to change it? So there's some very good people. I think, I think a lot would really benefit from fully recognizing who the customer is and spending more time with the customer. So when I was doing the mental health role, I used to read all the things we were doing, and I, which was a policy document or a strategy document, and I'd say, can I see the last strategy document that was done eight years ago? It would be almost identical. <laughs> Absolutely nothing really had changed. And I used to sit, and there was a block of flats outside, and I said, how does any of these words, they make me feel good, by the way. If I believed a word of them, they'd make me feel really, really good. Uh, and I'm sure I'll say them in Parliament with great gusto, or on the media with great gusto. But there's a person in that flat over there who is desperately, desperately relying on us to get this right. And that person is probably on their own, they probably don't know how to access us, they probably don't know that anyone, any one of us even cares, but they are desperately hoping that we can get it right. And that is actually our customer. And how do we ever check if we get it right, if we get it right for, in this case, this person with mental health? I'll leave you one last example that I use because it shocked me. So I was responsible for prisoner mental health. So you think, right, okay, all the problems about whether somebody can get up in the morning, get to their appointment, all of those things, they're all gone because the person is basically a captive audience. And there's a lot of people with mental health issues, undiagnosed uh, learning disabilities in, in, in this setting where they are for a year or two years. You know, we, could, we can obviously make a massive difference. And I know prisoner rehabilitation, all of those things have been a massive focus. So I went to see, we were investing a lot in prisoner mental health. So I went to see it, it was amazing. It had, the, the room was there, all these little rooms were there. Um, they, they were brilliant, all the psychologists, psychiatrists, all the expertise were there, we got the presentation. You would really feel good about what you were doing. So I asked just on my way out, could I see the, um, the, the register of appointments and, and how many people had, uh, had, had, had used these fantastic facilities. And they kind of looked a little shocked and, and uh, kind of... Anyway, I eventually got it. 34% of the appointments were used. Now, that's low. That's low in any, any, anything. But in a place where you've got a captured audience, it was beyond belief. So I said, why is that? Why is that? Where else are they going? There's nowhere else to go, literally. And I'd been around. I'd been talking to everybody in the prison and um, ask, asking them, you know, uh, uh, about, about things, which is why I knew to look. Um, uh, go and ask and you'll know where to look. Um, and they basically said, uh, ah, right, the problem is uh, we've put this, this, this facility here and to get the, um, the person in prison to their appointment, you need a guard. And there are, there are four guards for three floors 
and they need to do this as well. So they designed a process that could never work and, and didn't care. Yeah. And didn't care. And that told me everything I needed to know. I was there writing about how much, reading about how much money we'd spend, how this was going to change lives for people. It was changing lives for some people, but not enough. And they weren't all the same 34%. So that is the problem. Nobody really cares to go and check whether it's due. And that's a continuous improvement all the time. So I made them take it and move it into the prison where everyone could walk around, use that, and so people can just walk to it. It's really not that difficult, but you've got to care. Very good. Um, and I should say, you said this, it's not your specialist topic, but we would like <laughs> <laughs> a very good analysis, and we would like all ministers to think that civil service reform is their specialist topic. Um, Baroness Stoll, can I come to you? You've worked in, in the, with the civil service. What's your diagnosis of uh, the, the main problems with their effectiveness? And also, some reflections on whether the civil service is sufficiently accountable to Parliament. Um, thanks, Hannah. I mean, I, I'm going to, I suppose, pick up on, on points already made by Francis and uh, Gillian, because I think my... I know you wanted to ask me whether or not uh, the civil service was sufficiently accountable to Parliament, and um, my direct answer to that is, I think, in a kind of basic structural way, as far as accountability of uh, uh, um, uh, accounting officers to PAC, all that sort of thing. I mean, there's quite a lot of structured accountability in that sense. I think the big problem um, with the civil service is not an insufficient accountable t uh, accountability to Parliament, picking up on Gillian's theme, it's actually an accountability to the public. And, um, and I think accountability is, um, it wouldn't be addressed by more accountability from the civil service to Parliament, although I take Francis's point about a reorganisational reform and there may be some benefit if there was structural reform to the civil service, if there was some oversight of that by Parliament. But for me, accountability uh, is a mindset and never forgetting that you're there for a reason and that your job is to um, make the country work better for the people who live here and pay their taxes. And I was interested by the title of this session because it, um, it, it talks about uh, how can civil service uh, work better, but actually it's about being better for a reason. Uh, and I think that's, um, that, that's the critical uh, point. And as Francis has already said, this is not uh, a new problem. I think um, the way that the civil service doesn't keep focus on and sight on the fact <coughs> who they are serving, who, as Julian says, who their customers are, I think it became, uh, it's become more acute and more noticeable since Brexit. Uh, and I don't want to get into a discussion uh, about Brexit, of course, but I think what, um, what that event uh, did was uh, expose a dissatisfaction amongst a big chunk of uh, the public with the way in which the country is run, and that included the civil service. And I think that um, what there hasn't been um, uh, since then is uh, perhaps enough acknowledgement from the senior leadership of the civil service of um, their role in creating that uh, level of dissatisfaction. And that, combined with um, the fact that um, what people now define as political, uh, as in you know, your ordinary person, is, is, is not constrained to party political issues, 
that there's a sense amongst a lot of people that the civil service is, is more political and less impartial now than it used to be in the past. So that's created this sort of tension that you now see uh, between ministers and uh, the civil service because I think as you've had successive um, Conservative Prime Ministers since 2016 trying to bring in uh, policy or change to address the dissatisfaction of uh, the public at large, uh, whether that's things like you know, immigration or, or, or you know, the contentious type of, of issues, what they've sort of, I think, what, what, what they've felt is this um, uh, inadequate support from the officials to actually deliver on that policy. And I would just say, um, I mean, clearly, sort of, there is a, um, you know, the relationship between ministers and civil services that, you know, should be a symbiotic thing. And that, you know, ministers need civil servants and civil servants need ministers because um, ministers should be able to give that clarity uh, of um, both the sort of, you know, the strategic aim and the purpose, the reason for that uh, strategic aim. And, um, and clearly then the civil service should be able to uh, deliver on that. But the, the, the sort of common ground, the incentive, as it were, that Gillian's uh, uh, already referred to, I mean, it should be about making things work better. And, um, and that, uh, you know, and I think if, if civil servants are faced with ministers, who, and not every minister is brilliant, we know this, um, but, you know, if, if ministers are faced with or rather if civil servants are faced with a minister who is not being sufficiently clear in what it is that they're trying to achieve, that should not be a sign for civil servants to think, oh, that's good, we don't need to bother. Mm -hmm. That should be, uh, you know, that their role at that moment is to help them clarify the aim so that they can actually deliver better. And I think that's where there is a, I think, you know, if I was to point to one thing, I would say that um, is, is where I would like to see um, a change of, uh, of mindset. Um, but I think um, I'll probably leave it at that and, and move on to discussion. Thank you. Thank you very much. Um, Alex, uh, we've heard some diagnosis here from our politicians of, of what's wrong with the civil service. What state would you say the civil service is, is currently in um, as, as, we, as the new government uh, starts to get going. Thanks, Hannah. And the, um, the ex-civil servant on the panel. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm one of those too, a long time ago. Sorry, yes, I was, I'm here to represent the blob. And, uh, I'll, I'll be, um, uh, no, I mean, more seriously, I think it, it, it is worth acknowledging um, that the civil service is not in a brilliant state uh, in terms of its own kind of morale and motivation. I think it's battered and bruised, and I think it's uh, feeling frustrated to the extent one can ever ascribe um, uh, uh, sort of emotions <coughs> and states of being to an institution of 490,000 people. Um, I think that's for any number of reasons, but I would pick out two. I think Partygate and the uh, sort of collective uh, leadership uh, gaps that that exposed in the civil service was damaging. I'm not particularly talking about individuals or anything, but I think there was a the, the, the response to uh, Partygate and uh, the, uh, the, the question of how the civil service as well as ministers and others uh, um, uh, worked right at the very heart of government was you know, an, an example of a you know, damaging set of circumstances. So there's, a, there's a, a, a battered and bruised feeling there and there's a sense of frustration uh, partly for all of the reasons that um, the panel were talking about in terms of 
civil service reform not having had the uh, effect, not having taken effect, the same sort of questions being circled around, not just for years, but as Lord Maud was saying, for decades. Um, uh, and I think uh, perhaps there was a bit of a sense that with some notable exceptions, some of the uh, reform programmes around the civil service were more targeted at you know, headlines and, um, uh, and, uh, and uh, eye-catching numbers of job cuts rather than uh, looking to the long-term health of the uh, institution. So that's, that's, that's my sort of, uh, uh, that's my, my slightly kind of, you know, uh, civil service impression uh, 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 reflection. But I do think, um, I think the new government has an opportunity to, uh, to tackle some of the questions, particularly around accountability and particularly around um, the responsibilities of the civil service and get to some of these deeper issues which, as Lord Moore was saying, um, uh, have prevented uh, reform uh, happening. I think uh, the trust government has a clear sense of direction. I think the civil service responds well to uh, ministers and a, and, a, and, a, and, a, and a set of ministers that are able to offer a clear sense of direction. And I hope that the government looks seriously at some of these uh, systemic Questions. I also think there's a bit of a trap, uh, and it's run through what others have said, about thinking too much just about civil service reform. It's about the government system as a mm -hmm. whole, which is why we particularly come back to the question of um, uh, the spheres for which civil servants are responsible and should be held accountable, and those uh, for which uh, uh, ministers are properly accountable. I think there is a, and good luck, Lord Ward, with the work you're doing, because I think it's an incredibly difficult balance to strike, tension to resolve, call it, call it what you will, between um, holding civil servants properly to account for delivering for the customer and the public that uh, they serve, and a proper, vibrant, democratically accountable um, uh, government. And I think there's a tension there that we at the IFG um, grapple with um, the whole uh, time. Um, but uh, so to pick out that note of optimism, whatever the sort of political travails of the next couple of years, I do think this government has an opportunity to unpick some of those um, fundamental uh, problems, which are one of the reasons why the day-to-day -day stuff, the management stuff, the skills, the permeability between um, uh, the civil service and outside, the churn, the generalist specialist uh, dimension, um, uh, we, can, we can address. And I would also say, finally, uh, in this section, uh, uh, there are things that have got better over the last 10 years. Uh, I think the, the functions and the professions, uh, I think the civil service is in a totally different place to where it was on things like procurement mm -hmm. and commercial skills. Um, uh, I think the um, digital capability has waxed and waned a bit, um, uh, but uh, but I think we you know we know what the uh, uh, what the what the answer is there to uh, to Im Im improve the government system. So there is a you know change can happen, and we will always be talking about continuous improvement, as Gillian said. Um, so uh, it's not a surprise that the same sort of themes come up around skills and uh, and, and capability. Um, that's what you know that's what any large sort of organisation or collection of organisations will, will always do. Anyway, I'll, meandering off, I'll leave it there. Thank you, Alex. Um, can I just pick up on that, uh, that point you raise about, about the, the positive change that has happened? And just because there was a, a reference also that, that uh, Lord Maud made to, to COVID and some stuff that had, had done, gone well in mm. terms of the vaccine task force and so on. Can I just ask um, for the panel's reflections on, uh, you know, we, we, 
done you know, a, a good analysis, I think, of some of, the, some of the key problems here. What can we learn from recent years about what has gone well and where there has been innovation and that is positive that mm. should be picked up on? Okay, so um, it's often been observed, and I think rightly, that Whitehall's at its best in a crisis, um, and um, COVID was obviously a crisis. Um, but per what some permanent secretaries have told me um, is that they got stuff done by breaking the rules mm -hmm. um, and, um, uh, and have got into trouble uh, as a result. But what they say is they could not have got done what got done if they had followed the rule book. Um, and that, that's a problem. So one of the long-running things, has, uh, failings really, has been why is it that when you get into, as it were, COBRA mode, uh, which is very immediate and action-oriented, and when you're in COBRA, action points literally get put up on a screen in real time in front of you. Um, and that's why Michael Gove used it when preparing for the no, possible no-deal Brexit, um, because it had that sense of urgency and immediacy. Um, and, you know, and that can be pretty effective, but why is it as soon as that crisis is over, you revert to... Uh, a, 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 a kind of chalk and cheese different um, modality and, and, and culture. Um, and and um, so I think that, 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 that I, I don't think we are really learning the lessons. The, the lessons are actually we've got to, we, we load ourselves down with so much of what's called governance, but which is really about stopping things happening. Um, and we have far too little governance, which is about making things happen. Um, and, you know, the old, it's sometimes regarded as a joke, but it isn't really. You know, for every one person in government trying to make something happen, there are ten trying to stop it. Um, that remains, you know, the case. And when I talked, uh, mentioned to someone in another government this, he said, only ten? Um, <laughs> uh, uh, and um, so it's not unique to, to the British um, uh, civil service. But, I mean, part of it, picking up what um, Gillian was saying, her example of the, of the prisons, uh, when we started in the Cabinet Office, we had an, an efficiency program which saved cumulatively over uh, five years. It saved £52 billion from the running costs of government. And the approach we took was to say that it should be tight, loose, tight control of the things which are common across the whole government. And that's part of that's the functions. But I'm hearing now that... <laughs> Uh, as uh, the Cabinet Office gets to grips with cutting its numbers, a lot of the burden of cutting the numbers has fallen on the centre of the functions, which is the one place where you get the efficiencies being driven from. So that's insane. I mean, that is literally insane uh, to be doing that. But, the, but and, and permanent secretaries used to say, well, um, we're hearing, we're feeling the effects of the tight, but where's the loose? The loose is what they themselves can do and that is about empowering exactly the people Gillian's talking about, the front line. The people at the front line who understand how to do things better. And we had a program we called Public Service Mutuals, where groups of public sector workers spun themselves out, delivered the service in a, from an entity on a con, under a contract in an entity which they owned and led. Um, and, and all the times, and there were over 100 of these, and huge productivity improvements. And when I asked people in them, would you go back and work for the government, the NHS, the council, whatever they spun out of, I never heard anyone say anything but an immediate no. 
ask them why, and they would say, because here we can do things. We can see what needs to be done. And I bet that if the people at the front line in that prison were given a free hand, they would have worked out how to do it. Yep. Because public servants want to do things. Public servants at the front line do know who their customers are and do know what the problems are and do are generally imaginative about finding ways to, to make things work better. But you know, if you want to change something, you've got to write a business case which disappears up into the system, into some committee. You know, it's like dropping a, a stone down a very deep well. You never hear the splash. You never hear it get anything back. And, and, and I had people in these mutuals saying, you know, I spent so much of my time in the NHS writing business cases for things which never happened. Now we can just see what needs to be done and do it. And if it works, we stay doing it. And if it doesn't work, we stop doing it and find something different. Uh, and that's the loose, that's the empowering people at the front line. And we're simply not set up uh, to do that at the moment. Well, I completely agree with that. And I think we have to ask ourselves the question, who do the rules protect? Yeah. And what do the rules protect? They certainly don't affect the efficient use of public money, I'll tell you that. They do not. No. Because how many times do I sit there and I'm told as a minister, the only way to get the money out of the door is this. I'm like, that's stupid. Yeah, but it's either that or goes back to yeah. the Treasury. Really? You've got yourself in that position? What? Oh, again? That's the position all the time. So who do the rules or what do the rules protect? You really need to, we really need to question. Uh, but I did make a list of positive things because I do think there are many positive things. The commercial function is much better. Yeah. Um, it is working uh, much better. It, it has to work differently. A lot of people have come from um, outside, from, from um, you know, normal private, private organisations. Um, uh, but they've adapted to how, how it needs to work, because there's a lot of rules that are not in the private sector. Some of them are legislative, and some of them, hopefully, when we talk about ripping some of these up, hopefully it's that that we're talking about. The strategic supply management, where there's massive mutuality, that is much better. Um, Government's had a massive impact on uh, payment code, how it pays suppliers, uh, diversity of other organisations, the gender pay gap, um, apprenticeships in, 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 in third parties, T-level work placements which are coming up, and the environment. It's also its own organisation has diversified a lot, um, but not as much um, as it needs to in terms of background and, more importantly, thought. So there's a lot of good things. Um, but the, there's, there's, there's a lot of things. I'll leave, I'll leave anyone who's in the civil service, and I do this all the time. I'm a massive fan of apprenticeships, not just because I was one, but I was also the apprenticeship and skills minister. And this is a very simple way to know whether you've got diversity of background and thought. And you ask, uh, do you have any apprentices? Everyone will say yes, and everyone will point to the apprentice. You know. <laughs> um, and um, then you say, what level are they? And they'll say, level two, three, and a couple of fours. And that tells you everything you need to know. It's just a different route for different people to the same place. And unless you've got degree level apprenticeships, yeah. uh, higher level apprenticeships, all the way up to, I said, where, where can you be, where, where can you, how can you get to be a fast track or a perm sec via an apprenticeship route? And until you've answered that question, yeah. um, says someone who started at 16 as an apprentice and went to the top of business, therefore, you know, what was missing was not anything in terms of capability. It was the rungs of the ladder in Nosley. That was basically what was missing. There was nowhere to go uh, with my 10 O levels. So, you know, this is what you need to do to really think hard about how you really help to get those people in. There is one permanent secretary that was an apprentice. I found him. Um, and he was actually, when I was on the PAC, he was the one I thought 
the best of, the, the <laughs> highest of. And I didn't know this. And he's retired now, but it was John Thompson mm -hmm. at HMRC. And I thought he was fantastic. He spoke my language. I understand what he was saying. He was right on it. He was trying to get it done. When I was on the PAC, I, he, was, he was the person I, I most thought um, uh, acted like a real leader. And he was the apprentice, the only mm -hmm. one. So just, just leave you with that. Um, well, just to pick up on that thing before I, I, I answered your sort of broader question about um, how we can learn from experiences like COVID and, um, and Brexit. When I was a civil servant, I joined as a, as a secretary, and this is going back over 35 years ago now. And, uh, and I, because then the, the ladder, um, there was basically three ladders, fast track, A-level entrance or secretarial. And our ladder, the secretarial ladder was, was the shortest, as you would imagine. <laughs> And um, I had to leave the civil service in order to get on. And, um, you know, and there was, and I don't know that it's changed that much uh, since then. But anyway, um, I, I mean, as far as, I mean, what was interesting to me in terms of COVID and Brexit is that uh, what they both presented, uh, particularly COVID, was a, you know, was a focus and a sense that, you know, people had got a you know, clear task, what needed to be done and, and what have you. And that's, to me, the lesson that needed to be learned and and from my experience as a minister but also when i was um chairing the charity commission which is a non-departmental sorry a, a non-ministerial departmental i could never get the right <laughs> basically it's a, it's a government department without a minister and um anyway but but the um the, the thing which is uh, often striking to me with uh, the civil service is that they design processes and think that processes are an end in themselves mm. and or the processes are the way in which you would find answers to the problem rather than actually having identified both clearly what the problem is what it is that you feel that you need to do about it and then get on and deliver it so too much time is is is, is focused on on the how and not enough on the what and the why and um when i when i went to the charity commission um, I mean, what, we, what, what struck me there was this is a very um, uh, important uh, public body and a huge number of, um, well not huge, but a lot of people who um, were experts, very qualified, very, very knowledgeable, great people. But what we didn't have was a clear sense of purpose. We were regulating for the sake of it rather than regulating for a reason. And bringing some simplicity, you know, just basic um, strategic simplicity to an organisation and then um, trying to introduce um, uh, the sort of right structures that would then empower people to deliver did mean that we turned that organisation around. And, um, you know, it's, it, I mean, you, you can do this, it is possible, but you've got to be able to understand, you know, the leadership needs to be there and the understanding of, of what... Uh, what the requirements are of whether it's the PAMSEX or the you know, various different departments within an organisation. They need to know how to go about actually delivering change in their organisation. And I just don't know that there's enough people within the different Whitehall departments, for sure, um, that uh, know how to make that happen. Now, I'm going to just give Alex an a, a opportunity to answer that question. Once I have, I'm going to come to the audience for questions. So do be thinking of what questions you would like to ask Alex. Cool. Thanks, Helen. Um, just quickly on John Thompson. Uh, I uh, knew John and worked with John when, from the Cabinet Office when he was in HMRC. And it's, it's worth saying that his civil servants, his team, absolutely loved him as well. So there isn't a, you know, there's not some tension or there shouldn't be a tension no. between uh, the, you know, the officials who can 
give what Parliament needs, the PAC can come from different backgrounds and, um, uh, and can absolutely have, uh, you know, motivate their teams and create strong teams, uh, quite, quite the reverse. Um, so yeah, share Gillian's uh, appreciation of, uh, of John there. The uh, two quick points I was going to make, one was on um, going back to COVID and the uh, lessons from COVID. I think, uh, yes, British government can work well in a crisis, although I think not always as well as sometimes <laughs> You know, as civil servants and uh, ministers might like to uh, tell themselves. But I think what the government machine is particularly bad at is shifting, I think France used the word modality, but shifting modes and shifting from crisis mode to, uh, to peacetime, uh, if, if you like, uh, and understanding the mode that it's in and how it needs to operate. So uh, very common to say, oh, we need to kind of bottle the lessons from crisis X or crisis Y, but it's not as simple as that because in crisis X, you're, you have a clear objective. The whole system is geared towards a single, um, a single objective or set of objectives, and then you you leave that crisis moment, and suddenly all the complexity crowds in again. And policy making is as much about finding consensus uh, as it is about um, uh, kind of breaking down barriers and, and breaking rules. And I think um, uh, we're not as good in the UK at, at shifting from one mode to to another. And I think that's one of the things that the civil service to pick up um, Baron Stoll's point. Sort of owes ministers is a uh, helping them get from one mode to uh, to, to another. Um, the final quick point I was going to make was just on absolute. It's a bit like the accountability stuff. Absolutely runs through any question of government reform is the centre departments, and I just don't think we have a clear view on what should be the responsibility, a, a consistent set of responsibilities from the centre for departments and what needs to be left in uh, uh, as permanent secretary's uh, responsibilities, the tight, loose uh, model. And I think we sort of, we fudge our way yeah. through all of that without a clear sense of A, B, C, D, that's the cabinet office, that's the treasury, we set clear standards, this is how we do it. And then uh, uh, other, you know, another um, area of work where um, uh, where departments have the freedom to pursue their own policies. It's not easy like none of this stuff, but um, uh, but uh, 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 one of the many fudges that characterises British government seems to me to be that one. Mm. Thank you, Alex. Uh, we'll take some questions now. Uh, the mic, roving mic will come. First this lady here, we'll take three in, in a group. Uh, just a reminder that this event is on the record when you ask your question. <laughs> um, and please could you say who you are and yes. where you're from? So uh, thank you very much, panel. And Gillian, you're a breath of fresh air. And <laughs> Lord Maud, I hope that eventually you get the reforms. Uh, <laughs> um, um, my name's uh, Councillor Onnelly Cubitt. I've been a borough councillor for 15 years. Obviously, my experience is in relation to local government. But what is very clear from what uh, you've touched upon is that if the local government has problems with the lack of incentives, authority, care, accountability and identity of uh, customer, how on earth can working from home be the answer? It is a catastrophe. In local government, it was introduced in our borough pre-COVID, so it's got absolutely nothing to do with COVID, and it's not working, and it's making our lives a nightmare. And I dread to think what it's like in central government. I'd like to hear your views. This gentleman here. Uh, thank you very much. Uh, Keith Bess, my question's about uh, introduction of fresh thinking, innovative uh, ideas, and infusion of fresh blood. 
Um, when I left Westminster, I went into the not-for-profit sector and ran for successfully for fairly major charities. And so for 30 years, I saw, as Tina knows only too well, uh, in the non-profit sector, there is no room for fat whatsoever. You have to make sure everybody works effectively. And there is constant change as well. What is the panel's view about trying to engender a greater transference between the civil servants and particularly the not-profit sector where actually you can get that churn of people coming backwards and forwards and I think it would benefit the civil service enormously to actually get that hands-on experience of having to deal with beneficiaries more or less directly uh, but also uh, for the, for the not-for-profit sector to actually get civil servants coming in and seeing what it's like to actually have to run a fairly uh, significant uh, charity. I'm running this gentleman just oriented, Penny. Many thanks, Chris Francis, SAP, and uh, ex-civil service expert. Um, <laughs> um, many thanks for all the panel. Brilliant. My comment is really the sort of um, where we see the public sector has not learned from the private sector in, in feedback. We, we still have the policy fetishists, a term I'm going to steal, love it, um, <laughs> um, coming up with an idea, it goes through Parliament, it's then thrown over the wall to the operational silos, it then impacts the customers who may or may not be the silent majority, and if you're lucky, three years later on, the NAO will come and tell you what you did wrong, <laughs> and why the regulatory impact assessment may have been a work of art, but may have also been a work of fiction. Um, and that is the, 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 that simple thing. What is going on when I do it? Who is it impacting? Is it effective? Has it met my objectives? If objectives have even been set, how many regulatory impact assessments say what the objective is and how much it will cost? So there's, there's the, and the reason I mention that is it because it crosses the line between efficiency and effectiveness and goes through all the silos. I just want to, why on earth is that stuff which is completely standard in other sectors not happening? Mm. Thank you. Okay, so on that point on implementation, well, there's a whole load of stuff there. Um, Jonathan Slater, former permanent secretary, wrote a very punchy piece for King's College earlier this year uh, called Break, uh, Fixing Whitehall's Broken Policy Machine. Uh, and the big thing he focused on was the separation between people doing policy and implementation. Uh, and of course he's right, and the, what you described is completely right. Implementation gets done in the functions, uh, and the functions um, uh, and require disciplines which are common across this, the, the system. And yet, the, because we have fudged um, whether it is one civil service, um, there is resistance to the functions having the mandate to drive um, uh, accountability for implementation uh, in, in real time. Um, uh, there's a whole load of things need to be done. Uh, what, first, I would, uh, and I think I'll probably recommend this, when a policy decision is made in a cabinet committee, the permanent secretary should be there as well as the minister and present the implementation plan um, and be questioned on it because that just doesn't happen. Quite often there isn't at that stage an implementation plan and the discipline just to require there to be one would be good. Um, point on in innovation. Um, uh, it is, it's, it's often been commented there's a culture which is hostile to innovation um, and and it's not particularly surprising when you reflect that in the Treasury's famous green book, um, there are special provisions for anything which is regarded as novel or contentious. Um, and, uh, and if it's considered by the Treasury 
to be novel or contentious, then it goes through an even more agonizing and pointless process of, uh, of analysis, so-called analysis, um, than if it isn't. So not surprising, the signal that permeates out from that is don't try anything new because uh, no one really wants to hear it. And, you know, great organizations know that you learn much more from the things that are tried that don't work than from the things that are tried and do work. And fail small, fail fast, try new things all the time. Stop doing the ones that don't work, and we're not brilliant at that either. Um, and, and, but constantly iterate, constantly um, innovate. Just your point on homeworking. I'm a, I'm a fan of some homeworking. I've always thought that um, for, pe for people who can, who, who can be effective working from home, some homeworking actually increases productivity. Um, and there is some research that suggests that the optimal split is three to four days in the office, one or two days at home. Um, and in the civil service, where, when we, we were trying to increase this during the Olympics, the London Olympics, to stop people coming into central London, and lots of people said, oh, how will I know that people are working if I can't see them? Well, you measure people, whether they're working, by what they're producing, by their what's called outputs, um, rather than whether you can see them sitting at their desk. Um, and um, I think that there is no evidence that working entirely from home is good um, and is open to abuse. Most people are um, in, in the public service ha are, have a public service <coughs> ethos, and most people want to do the right thing and want to do it to do it well. Um, and when people talk about incentives um, to do things better, well, the biggest incentive for all of us who go into public service and want to be in public service is wanting to do things right, do the right thing for the people uh, we represent and serve. Um, and so I'm not against homeworking, but, um, but there is a balance here. Uh, and the balance is, uh, and this is what I do with my own um, uh, company, we say, you know, we want people in the office three, three days probably, two days working at home is fine, but we're going to, you know, but, but people need to be productive. And, and if people can spend an extra two hours a day working rather than commuting, hey, uh, what's wrong with that? Thank you very much. I don't know if you need to shoot off, but uh, feel free to. Yeah, I do. <laughs> Sorry, thank you. No, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Brenna Storm. Just, uh, well, just briefly, um, I, I mean, just to comment on the feedback uh, and uh, implementation. <coughs> I do think that's uh, really important, and the lack of that is uh, a real problem. And it, it comes back to various points we've already uh, talked about, really, which is that not only should there be the facility for that, and it should be built in at the start, it also addresses the point that uh, Gillian made earlier, which is that, you know, you've got, I'm generalising now, but, but often, more often than not, the people on the front line who are really responsible for sort of what people are experiencing will not be the sort of Oxbridge types who are sat in uh, Whitehall departments. And if they are more empowered to feed back from the front line sort of into um, Whitehall and to know that that feedback is actually then making a difference and there's this iterative progress of continuing to approve, improve, then what you should start to get as a benefit of that is much more 
um, you know, a more diverse thought process and all the things that we know are important and are lacking at the moment in terms of you know, the overall effectiveness of the civil service. So it's, it's, it's all part of this understanding that being part of the public service or being a civil servant, whatever, you know, whether you're a civil servant or a minister, as Francis has said, is part of how we are making things work better. And that's what, I know I keep saying it, it's a very simple mm -hmm. thing, but things that are, are simple and not necessarily easy, but there are things that people are forgetting all the time. And I think if we can concentrate and focus on that, we could actually make quite a bit of a difference. Thank you. Sorry. We're Thank you. <laughs> I know, I know. Uh, um, uh, in terms of the question, working from home, um, I, I mean, it's brilliant, right? If you need to focus, if you need to write something, if you need to read, if you need to concentrate, but it is a solitary activity. And I think we need to change the debate. If you need to interact and innovate, it's always better done with people. And I think we need to, people need to start asking themselves the question, it's not just you, but who is missing out from you not being there to give an insight, to give an answer, to show some of your experience? Who's missing out from that interaction? You will never know. You'll never know. And I think we need to change the debate because this is about giving back. And I, and I very much do worry when I think about, I mean, obviously I started work at 16, so I did, you know, I knew even less than most people, but um, I, I couldn't have done any of the things I've done without the people that I learned from all around me, and I didn't yeah, learn yeah, it from yeah. anything else. Mm. Um, in terms of innovation and fresh blood, what actually su surprises me and is great is there is a massive <laughs> desire still from young people to join the civil service. A massive desire. Lots of people come forward. Lots of people. It's, it's undiminished. Um, What's diminished is their enjoyment when they're there. Um, and they start to value the, uh, maybe the work-life balance, increasingly the pension. I, and I think, you know what, those things are great to, to, uh, to, to prioritise, but usually you prioritise them at the end of your career, um, when you're, when you're kind of heading to pension. Industry exchanges, yes, but uh, to pick up on one of Francis's points, you've got to, they've got to hear the splash. You've got to, you've, you know, it's so unrewarding, and I get that. I feel the pain of civil servants. I mean, the poor team that spent all summer teaching me about Mental Health Act as we were just about to go into pre-legislative scrutiny on the Thursday um, before the reshuffle, and their faces, I mean, it said it all, and I felt so sorry for them because, you know, they put everything into it, I'd put everything into it, and now they were going to start with someone who had absolutely no clue. And, and it's awful to be that person, because I've been that person as well. You start and you think, really? I've got to take this through Parliament, and I know absolutely nothing about something very complex. That's also terrible. Um, the NAO and the PAC, um, it, is, it is like they're going on trial, this preparation for the, for the PAC. And we need to, in some way, in business, and it took, it took a long time in business, where, where the words were said, but where it was really, really meant, that you've got to be open to failure. Now, the only way you can do that is by having this, this interacting back from the front line, this constant curiosity to fail fast, because it's much easier to digest. When you've got a big failure, nobody in their right minds wants to be associated with it in any way, shape, or form. So you've got to have that. And unless, you know, if you take 10 years to do something which ultimately fails, you know, it's massive to digest that. And that, no wonder people sort of try and find a skirting ball to hide, hide under or whatever. It's, it's natural. So I think uh, that is really, really important, how we do that in the civil service. Uh, and they kind of try to do it through pilots, but they are all managed. They're managed. Mm. 
and controlled in a way to steer them into what you thought first. Yeah, yeah, I think pilots often sound good, but yeah. don't necessarily deliver. Alex, do you want to come? Oh yeah, the skirting boards of Whitehall are full of <laughs> accounting officers. Uh, uh, anyway, sorry, uh, working from home. God, it's good to be back in the office again. Uh, um, so, absolutely everything that everybody said, but I do think it's horses for courses. I particularly worry in the civil service context about some, well, about a lot of creativity on the one side, but on the other side, particular skills and particular parts of the civil service, notably digital and data experts, where the expectation in the private sector is just to work from home possibly the whole time. So I think the civil service needs flexi enough flexibility that it can recruit digital uh, specialists, for example. Um, uh, otherwise, the, it, you know, one of the few civil service can't compete on pay, so one of the few sort of terms and conditions uh, um, uh, 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 relative benefits uh, that it has to get talent in is lost. But it's it's obviously a balance, as others have said. Um, on uh, there's a on, on interchange and uh, uh, and uh, getting fresh blood and fresh thinking in. There is a terrible word, word stalking uh, Whitehall, and that word is porosity. Um, uh, but it's uh, conceptually, I think it's exactly the right thing. Uh, flag up uh, um, IFG report that we're putting out probably in about a month, which basically says it hasn't, um, uh, it hasn't taken effect. Obviously, good people come in, um, uh, and there is some interchange. Yes, with the third sector. I also think local government and the wider public sector is a hugely untapped resource, as well as the private sector. Um, uh, but uh, the civil service and ministers have talked about it for a very long time, uh, but have never actually put the resource, the energy, the, the basic administrative kind of uh, structures in place that actually allows it to happen uh, and uh, frankly looking back on my time in the civil service the civil service culture is quite not always intentionally but quite resistant to the you know the sort of tissue rejection that that people have talked about to those who've got different um, experiences but I mean that it one of the things we'll be saying is just, for goodness sake, get the basics right, get that, the hygiene factors of uh, welcoming new people in, managing contracts, you know, transferring pensions, all of that sort of um, stuff. So yes, on that. On policy, others have said it uh, better. I would just say I think we've, there's been an assumption in the civil service for a long time that, uh, uh, that we're in the UK really good at policy and not so good at implementation. Francis is white collar, blue collar distinction. I do think there's an argument that that's flipped around a little bit. I don't think the, I think I think the uh, discussions and debates and pressure to improve implementation has been stronger than keeping absolutely up to date with the best policy techniques, the best ways of engaging people. Uh, and I think one of the things we saw again in the pandemic was that some of the existing structures stood up, the delivery structures stood up better than the policy decision-making um, structures in the centre. And I think one of the things we should take from that, particularly that early COVID phase, was just how badly uh, the uh, policy advice melted down right in the centre of government. And uh, that's something that needs to be, uh, is being addressed, I think, but needs to be further addressed. Can I, I just wanted to come back on, on one thing, because I'm going to challenge you. <laughs> this data working from home point, don't make assumptions. Yeah. Most mm -hmm. of my, my youngest stepson did, did, did data and um, tech, uh, computer science. So I know a lot of young people, two years, they graduated two years ago in COVID. They could not wait mm -hmm. to go to the office. They were discussing which one went to go, what it was like. 
the tea, the coffee, the soft drinks, the fact there was a flex, the, the, the manager A, what they said, the manager B, it's the same, they're the yeah. same, they're people. You wanna go through a sliding door, it involves other people. Don't make assumptions that they are people who wanna sit in their bedroom all the time. They're not, they're, they really don't. So I think we have to be careful. And I would also challenge one other thing. There is no such thing as policy without implementation, that's paper. Yeah. <laughs> On the second point, totally agree. Totally, t totally, totally agree. But I think, well, anyway, yes, I agree. Yeah. Um, <laughs> on the, on That's the, a good place to stop. No, the, you don't have to agree. First, but I, no, I'm, no, I'm no, doing but it for a the, reason. On the, on the first point, on the um, uh, uh, on the on the digital one. I mean, I'm reflecting what those who are trying to recruit. You're, you're reflecting people, a, you're re uh, you're reflecting a stereotype, which yeah. is why I've I've, I've, I've pushed enough. my view in. Fair enough. Great. <laughs> I'm going to have another couple of questions. Uh, lady right at the back. Penny behind you. One thing that nobody's mentioned is about actually managing people out. Oh, yeah. I have a young civil servant, a former civil servant working with us at the moment, who said that they left because they could only be occupied for 60% of the time. They are an amazing individual. And in number 10, we saw so many times you flinched when you had certain people come onto the team. And you also relished when you saw a department soar. Alex, I saw you go from cabinet office to Michael Goh's department, he attracted people. You see it in DCMS at the moment with Sarah Healy and how she attracts people. And I understand that with all the arrangements around London Bridge and the death of the monarch, there were like adrenaline junkies. Yes. You saw the same people coming round because they'd done Afghanistan, they'd done Ukraine. These are the kind of people, and they often are number 10 private secretaries that have served before but you also know where there is a lot of people that aren't doing a lot. And we have to adjust. It was a blob because people don't come out. Mm -hmm. And when you therefore have messages about making massive cuts, it's the good people you lose. But surely, you know, as a business, I thought, I'll stop. But, you know, as a businesswoman, the decision that I failed in was to not take a decision to lose somebody early enough and the yes. impact that had on the team. So when do we get to that? Thank you. Thanks, Julian McRae. Um, just really struck by some of the examples of good practice that people were raising. A lot of them started with Francis's time uh, when he's driving change from the cabinet office. A lot of very bumpy change and a lot of difficulties, but he was there for nearly four or five years, if I recall correctly. Do you think it is possible to change large and complex organizations like a civil service without very clear and persistent leadership coming from the political side? Thank you. And there's last one over here. Thanks so much. Um, Sophie Downreiter from the Centre for Long-Term Resilience. Um, I'm going to start by being nice to Alex and saying that I think your, your paper on accountabilities um, and potentially needing a statutory basis for the civil service to, to have better accountabilities. Um, I'm really interested from a risk management point of view in how to set up the right accountabilities for the civil service and for ministers uh, to manage the, the biggest risks. And what, what I'd ask the panel is, what angle do you attack the problem from? Is it holding people to account after they've left um, their, their roles? Is it trying to um, sort of find ways to uh, manage poor performance, um, or is it a, a legal basis? Um, I'd love some, some ideas and some brainstorming on that. Thank okay. you. I'm conscious we're going to run over, so we're going to do uh, very quick remarks on all that from the, from the panel before we draw to a close. Alex, I'll start with you. Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, uh, uh, I think, well, taking that sort of um, reverse order, I think, 
which angle do you tackle the kind of accountability and responsibility problems from? Well, it's, it's sort of all angles. The, the, the advantage of getting the accountability and responsibility structures right is that the incentives are then better aligned to have uh, more effective outcomes. So if, if, you, if you're pro properly responsible for something and being held accountable for it, you're both uh, more likely to do the job more effectively in the, you know, in the moment, and it is easier then to hold you to account for things that go wrong, but also things that go well. So I think the advantage of ironing out these, uh, some of these fudges, <coughs> not easy, but definitely worth uh, doing, is, uh, is, is uh, clear. Um, do you need clear, persistent political leadership? Yes. Um, uh, I was in the Cabinet Office for uh, 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 most of um, Francis's time in the coalition government. It was bumpy. There was lots of internal opposition. There was, but are we sitting here now saying the functions were the right thing to do? The, you know, you can still argue about the model, but uh, as you said, Julian, a, a lot of the right, um, uh, uh, you know, a lot of the things that have gone right over the last ten years, we can date to that period. Um, managing out, completely agree. Uh, my sort of personal thing, it, it always struck me striking that the the. Uh, sort of reducing the size of the civil service, it goes in, it goes in these waves. So you have uh, civil service grows because of Brexit and COVID, and then we must slash it, and then we go. It would be far more healthy, I think, for the civil service as an organisation to have regular rounds of, you know, however you describe it, whether it's two percent, five percent, eight percent redundancies, <coughs> or a kind of expectation of uh, managing people out, uh, and and that being. Um, uh, that being part of the normal course of business, so that the good people do get on and the not so good people are managed out. Uh, but that being, you know, an annual thing or a, every two years or something like that, because that um, uh, sets a healthier culture for rewarding success and I think and, and dealing with failure. Uh, first of all, in, in Alex, because I'll be nice about it. The reason I'm here is <laughs> the sympathy, but <laughs> yeah, you take it. It's not it's not often dissed out, but um, uh, the, the reason I'm here is because of Alex. Because um, well, because he asked me. But actually, when I was struggling between trying to turn my business sort of experience into how to work as a minister effectively, and I was struggling with that, I basically got Alex and Tim in to help mentor me in kind of understanding the civil service, because I did know that I, I had some gaps missing. Uh, to Nikki's point, yeah, everyone sees it. And I think one of the things when you're a leader that you go through at some point a sliding door in understanding is yet yeah, hard to manage people out, and, and it really is, and you can do it very well, actually. Um, but everybody else expects leaders to act, and when they don't, which is usually what happens, usually they don't, they disappoint and they demotivate. So you're disappointing and demotivating a whole load of people who are looking and seeing. It's like, a, it's like almost like gangrene or something. It's there and it just gets worse. Um, so leadership, the question about political, managerial, managerial, actually, the leaders are in the civil service. I, if I was a leader in the civil service, I'd be doing everything I've said. I, I wouldn't think I needed a minister to tell me how to manage organisations, motivate people, get organisational structures working, get them mm. working so they're close to the customer, have the feedback. I wouldn't need anyone to tell me any of that, so I don't know why they need that. But there is, in terms of risk management, your point. Um, I, I don't get proper risk-managed advice. I get how to manage a minister, right? And, and I can see it. They can see it. I know exactly what it is. It's 30 to 50% here, 50 to 80 over there. It's, it's the same every time, and it's managing minister. I can take risk. I've taken risk my whole entire career, and I'm very happy to in this world as well. But you need to know exactly what the risk is you're taking, how you're going to mitigate it, and where it's left. And you all need to agree it. It's very, 
it's, it's, quite, it's quite easy to do it once you really understand it, mm. if you are brave enough, and then you just need people who are brave enough. But I don't get genuine risk management. I get, I, I'm being managed, not risk. And that's probably 80% of certainty jobs is keeping... Manage a minister, yeah. At the expense of everything else. <laughs> and you don't need to. You, you know, it's 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 not the job. I think someone's got the job descriptions wrong somewhere. I, I, you know, it, it needs to be changed because it's not what I expect. It's not what I want. It's not what I need. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I, I, mean, I think. Uh, I mean, I agree with with everything that that Gillian said. Um, I mean, I guess because if I could sum it up, I'd say that too much in my experience, um, I've seen the civil service um, think that. You know, work is about feeling better, okay? You know, like, people are coming to work and we need to help them feel better. No, I don't, you know, of course I want you to feel, I don't want you to feel horrible, but I want you to be better, you know? And, um, and if you are a leader, um, you do require, you know, you do need the courage um, and you need, as Chilean says, to know that you've got to be able to um, deal with people who are not performing as well as they should, knowing that you don't just owe it to that person, you owe it to everybody else. Because if you don't do that, then um, you, know, you end up with a, with a whole team or a whole workforce who are not performing uh, to the uh, full potential of them as individuals, and certainly collectively as a team, you're just not delivering. Yeah, I think it's the same side, other side of the coin mm. you were talking about in terms of working from home. It's what is the effect on other people yeah. as well as the individual. Yeah. Brilliant. Well, thank you to everyone for uh, an excellent discussion. Francis in his absence. <laughs> um, thank you all for joining us. Uh, I hope you'll join us for some uh, other IFG events. We've got some uh, brilliant ones coming up. Uh, lots on levelling up later today. Uh, tomorrow on the NHS, on trust, uh, on net zero and all sorts. So please do join us for those. But anyway, thank you.